listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Mary Gay Scanlon from Ballard Spar. Mary Gay is based in Philadelphia, and we discuss the access to justice culture and exciting pro bono developments happening there. Her career in the firm's pro bono program, inspiring stories about the firm's work across a variety of client populations, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Scanlon, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you better? Okay. Well, I grew up in the wilds of northern New York, which is different than upstate New York because I was actually up on the Canadian border. I went to college at Colgate University in the middle of the state and then came down to Philadelphia for law school at University of Pennsylvania, and I've never left. Now, why did you become a lawyer? How did you make that decision? I was really unoriginal. Um, My father and both grandfathers and a number of uncles were lawyers, so it was sort of a natural path. I did have the distinction of being the first female lawyer in my family, but I always kind of went back and forth between being a lawyer and the other favorite profession in our family, which was to be some kind of teacher. And I ended up as a lawyer, although eventually I ended up ended up doing education law at the Education Law Center of Pennsylvania. So I've combined it. So um, I'm always intrigued when people go into the sort of quote unquote family business, (laughs) when when they've seen it up close and personal. And I will tell listeners, I I had a little uh, trailer about this when I saw Mary Gay in New York on Tuesday. And I I just said, nope, I want to, I'm not going to drill in now. We're going to save this for our conversation later in the week. So what was it about what you saw in your, in your family that, that wet your appetite and, and sealed the deal or other reasons? Well, what I saw with um, particularly my father and grandfather was they were lawyers in a small city. The firm they both worked for was, I think, 12, 15 lawyers at its max. But it was somewhat different days and somewhat the smaller town where lawyers were more generalists and they were very active in the community. So involved on a lot of nonprofits and boards. And my dad was on the school board and my grandfather was on the commission that built the bridge over the Thousand Islands. And and so there was always a lot of civic engagement. So growing up, that was part of what you did and part of what being a lawyer was was really only when I got to the big city, and there's a lot more specialization here. So if I had to pick, I was going to go towards the public interest side. So what do you think either, you know, we talked a little bit about the family and the influences that you had. What else do you think went into the mix that sparked your passion for access to justice and pro bono? That's tough. It was always sort of part of the mix. I mean, my first job in law school um, after my first year, I worked for the clinic at Penn Law, providing carryover services until the next semester started. So I, I guess it was always just looking at the law as a tool for justice and, and fairness and whatever, and, and the access to justice uh, elements of it are, that's kind of the purest form. We're going to drill down into your role and the firm and pro bono at the firm, but before we do that, I'd like to talk a little bit about Philadelphia, where you mentioned you went to law school at Penn and you've never left and where you're speaking to us from today. Could you tell us a little bit about the pro bono and access to justice culture in the city? Well, that's where I've been incredibly fortunate. I think there are 22 or 23 public interest law firms in Philadelphia. So it really covers the mix from um, immigration, farm workers' rights, to um, general poverty law, to education law, um, the Juvenile Law Center, which is a national organization, is based here. We have a branch of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. The Public Interest Law Center of Philadelphia is here. Um, there's really expertise across the board, and community legal services here in Philadelphia has brought many, many of the Supreme Court cases concerning children's SSI. The Education Law Center brought cases about the right to compensatory education. It's really for 
let's see, since the 70s really, has been just an incredibly rich public interest and access to justice community, um, often on the cutting edge of, you know, whatever the latest issue is, and uh, a really supportive, great group of people to work with. Have you seen over your time in Philadelphia evolving legal needs, things that maybe when you were working in the clinic at Penn weren't on anyone's radar screens and over the years have really emerged as sort of dire areas of need? I don't know that there are any new needs. I mean, poverty is still with us and and it still drives so much of the uh, legal services needs. I mean, Philadelphia is the poorest large city um, in terms of the percentage of people living at or below the poverty line. I think it's over 20% at this point. Um, somewhat related to the demographics of the city in terms of aging, um, the percentage of African American and Latino residents who, just because of the way our country's been uh, structured, often are poorer. Um, so that's a, a huge driver, the level of poverty in the city. The state also has a pretty dysfunctional education system, so that's not helping. Um, it is the state funds less of the percentage of public education than all but a handful of other states. So we're right, we're right down there with Mississippi and Alabama and such. So, um, you know, the lack of a strong education system kind of feeds into that. I mean, the biggest change I think I've seen in 30-some-odd, almost 40 years, is the emphasis on immigration and just the visibility of that, the interest in doing that work, which has been very strong in the pro bono community in particular. And, of course, over the last nine months, there's been an awful lot of immigration work to do. Yeah, that's definitely a ripped from the headlines area. So let's switch gears a bit. How did you get to Ballard Spar? My husband's been a lawyer at Ballard Spar for, oh gosh, he was a summer associate in 1982. So we met in law school. He has been here since he finished his clerkship. I never in my wildest dreams would have chosen to be at the same firm as my spouse. But at a certain point, I guess 13, 14 years ago, the woman who'd been the pro bono counsel here and had started the program moved on to another firm, and it really is about the best job in the world. So just because my spouse was working here, I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to have the position. And at that point, I had both worked in a large law firm and I had worked at a nonprofit. So that was really helpful in terms of being able to navigate the strange space that pro bono counsel work in. We're going to come back to your husband a little later on. <laughs> could you, oh, for, good. <laughs> for people who may not be familiar, could you just give us the 30,000-foot overview of the firm? Sort of what's Ballard Spar? Okay. Ballard Spar is a firm of today about 550 lawyers um, based in Philadelphia for almost 100 years. It has offices in 13, 14 other cities. About half the lawyers are outside of Philadelphia and that goes from L.A. to New York and down to Atlanta and throughout the Rocky Mountains, et cetera. But in the last two weeks, we've had two big pieces of news. The first is that we're merging with the Lindquist Venom firm as of um, January 1st. And that firm is based in Minneapolis and has offices in um, Sioux Falls and Denver, where we also have an office. So that was number one. They have about a, 120, 130 attorneys. And then earlier this week, they announced that we're going to be merging with the Levine Sullivan firm, probably the premier First Amendment firm in the country. And they have offices in uh, D.C., Washington, Denver, Philly, where we also have offices. So the firm is going to grow in the next six months from 550 to about 675 attorneys. So that's major um, news as far as we're concerned. But the great thing was that one of the driving factors in particularly the Lindquist merger was the perception that the two firms have very similar cultures, and pro bono was kind of the biggest driver of that perception. Um, Both firms have extremely active pro bono cultures, long-term commitments, doing a lot of great work. And as of yesterday, we're collaborating on our first case, even though the merger isn't going to happen until January. 
I, I love that we are um, covering breaking firm news on the podcast, <laughs> and I, I, I can't wait to have you come back and we can kind of talk about how uh, the integration and how things are going. I know, I, I know you are out there. There is a listener or several who, who are scratching their head and are thinking, wow, the Linquist firm, I think I know about them. Right? And you are right, because back in November of 2016, Cindy Anderson and John Bai were guests on the pod. So anyone who wants to know about Pro Bono at Linquist, just go back to our archives and listen, and <laughs> we can uh, get you up to speed. So we'll look forward to having you all on uh, down the road and, and seeing where things are. That's great. And Cindy and I are now like daily pen pals and phone buddies and everything as we uh, work through how how we're going to maximize our pro bono between the two firms. Oh, it's fantastic. And I hope you keep a little sort of scratch paper of tips because then you can pay it forward, you know, and sort of help educate the next firms to go through this. Because if you read about the law firm world and the economy, this is the business cycle that we're in. So <laughs> it's not going Right. Gonna... And actually, Pro Bono Institute has been very helpful because Cindy reached out um, earlier this week and Tammy Taylor sent her the pro bono um, self-assessment yep. that firms can do and a piece that PBI had already done on tips for merging. So yeah. we're going to be using those materials. So thank you, PBI. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, we, we, we saw the writing on the wall when these started happening. And uh, as, as many of you know, I went through a firm merger when I was in practice. And so it's nice to give some general guidance and then hone in with any particular people on their specifics. So let's circle back to what it means to have the best job in the world and talk mm-hmm. about your role at the firm, which, as we heard, has suddenly grown. <laughs> your portfolio yeah. is constantly growing and changing. And our crack research team found an interview that you gave. I actually think the topic was running, but they asked you about what you do in your job. And you... Um, had this great description of it. You described it as connecting, quote, really smart lawyers with great pro bono projects, which involves a combination of nagging and cheerleading and making connections between nonprofits and legal services groups and attorneys and figuring out what their interests are. So what do you think? Is that still how you spend your time? And how would you describe your role and what you do? Well, I think we're done with the interview now because you already got the answer. (laughs) Yes, that was from a running blog because uh, both my husband and I are runners and somehow someone made that connection. Um, No, I think that's right. It's it's very much a connection uh, uh, role here. I mean, one of the things that justifies the role of pro bono counsel is that you've got someone who is knowledgeable about what's going on in the legal services community and can connect to private bar lawyers. Well, let's talk about how you spend your time. You know, there is no average day. I totally get that. But for people who aren't super familiar with how pro bono leaders, you know, spend their day, you know, tell us sort of some of the things that you might do day to day, week to week. I mean, a lot of work is done via email with various task forces, um, connection groups. When we get matters in or there's a new project to launch, then we're pushing out um, information internally. I have talked to people about it being kind of a marketing job because you are marketing pro bono opportunities to lawyers. Um, and lawyers are so risk-averse that you um, need to get over some barriers in the private bar. Um people not wanting to appear stupid or screw up or something when you're asking them to do a type of law they're not normally engaged with. So it's, you know, making sure they have the supports to um, launch into a new area of law, um, sometimes doing some hand-holding, or just, you know, explaining why it's such a great thing to do. So dealing with risk-averse lawyers who maybe aren't comfortable, right, stepping out of their area of expertise or kind of um, getting out of their comfort zone, that is one factor that sometimes holds people back. But what have you found works best to incentivize and encourage lawyers at the firm to do pro bono work? Well, I think always the most important thing is leadership 
in the law firm. I mean, if the leadership is actively engaged with pro bono work, is communicating that it's important and reinforcing that, then that is absolutely the most important thing. If leadership is passive or if leadership is not engaged or, you know, worst case scenario, signaling that it's really not important, you know, subtly or otherwise, then that really can undermine a program. So I I think that's really important. So some of the things for um, signaling support is having members of the board taking pro bono cases. Um, Now every partner in um, the allocations process is asked about their pro bono work, or if they have none, why not? Um, Associates are encouraged to highlight that in their memos when they're reviewed. We have annual awards at the firm meeting. Um, So again, you know, time is being taken out of a firm-wide activity to highlight um, people's accomplishments. Um, Something I stole from um, Scott Fishman is sending out regular alerts as to pro bono um, activities. I think he called them pro bono high fives. I call them news from the pro bono front. So if someone has a victory or there's a particularly interesting new matter, then we push that out to everyone. So I want to follow up, and this is where we mentioned that your husband is part of the firm leadership or the leader of the firm. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> how, because this is something that we advise, right? It's really hard to say you have a firm committed to pro bono and ask lawyers at all seniority level to do pro bono if the firm leaders themselves are quite distant, right, from the program mm-hmm. or not engaged. Yeah. And so to have the leadership not only give speeches and show up at events, but actively be engaged in pro bono. Uh, I get a lot of skeptical looks with people saying, our people would never do that. They're so busy. They're always on planes and they're never in their office. And, you know, how? Was it a hard sell? Are there any kind of tricks to, to making that happen? Or, you know, did you just have such it may be, and this isn't an either or, amazing pro bono, you know, amazing firm leaders that it it, it wasn't such a challenge. Well, I mean, this is the, my husband's the fourth chair since Ballard started its formal pro bono program. And that happened when Susie Turner, who's now at Deckert, approached the firm leadership and said, I think you really need someone to organize it. It was in 1988, so 30 years ago, this coming year. And the firm was very receptive. And since that time, we have had really strong support from leadership. From time to time, we've made a point for Susie and then myself of going to firm leadership and saying, you know, we need the department chairs to have pro bono cases. We need the chair to take on a pro bono case. And they have done that. And then we have broadcast it (laughs) so that it has always been part of the fabric of the firm. That is a great tip. I mean, When people do pro bono, others at the firm need to know about it, right? So when your leadership, uh, important people, role models, that's amazing. And don't be shy. (laughs) Broadcast it, right? Make it visible. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that's in the last couple of years, a number of law firms have, have tried out, and we're in the midst of a study right now with a group of behavioral scientists and behavioral economists from Yale. It's called the Yale Applied Cooperation Team, and um, we enlisted them a couple years ago to work on messaging regarding pro bono. So this group's um, focus is how you get people to do the right thing. So they had an article in the New York Times in May of 2015, I think, on um, how to get people in California to turn off the water when there's a drought. What kind of messaging do you use? So uh, I live in a college town, and one of the researchers lives in my town, so we made that connection at a cocktail party, and now he's working with um, a bunch of the large firms on, on messaging. And the first thing we rolled out was a sticker program which some law firms had already started using, but so we're studying it in terms of, okay, you have offices with stickers and offices without stickers. Does it affect the impact or does it affect your pro bono numbers? So our firm target is 50 hours annually, 
but we've also got kind of a lower uh, 20 hours. You know, let's at least get you on the board. And then once you're on the board, let's move you to 50 hours. So we have two different stickers. And starting midway through the year, we start putting them next to people's nameplates. Have they achieved the 20-hour level or have they achieved the 50-hour level? And um, it's great both because it recognizes those people who are doing the work, but it also taps into that lawyer competitive edge. And we have people with sticker envy. So it, you know, you walk down a hall and there's 20 offices and they all have a sticker. Well, what's wrong with you? That's yeah. been kind of fun. Oh, I love that. We love studying the lawyer personality and <laughs> behavioral yeah. psychology and behavioral economics and see what principles and sort of academic learning about things like motivation and, and, yep. and participation that we can tweak and use and, and apply here. I mean, the stakes are so high that we really need to do whatever we can to get people involved and, and promote access to justice. So you mentioned that you had... Uh, sort of a public interest background. You have been at the Education Law mm-hmm. Center and you came up through that pipeline. And Cindy Anderson also, right, came through yeah. legal services and has a public interest background. Do you think for people who are going to, um, you know, run pro bono programs at law firms that having that background uh, is an asset and why? I think you have to have that background somehow, whether you at least have been on a board of a, a nonprofit legal services group or not, because you have to understand how different it is from the law firm. I mean, I always tell people that what is remarkable to me is how each side, both the nonprofits and the law firms, think the other is so much more organized than it is. So when a legal services group says to me, what are your pro bono priorities? It's like getting people to do it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not that we're saying, oh, we have to do X this year. Um, it's really who can I persuade and who is going to be interested. Whereas on the other side, the private bar lawyers have a tendency to think that these nonprofits, which often are you know, practically mom and pop shops and everyone's doing their own word processing and you know, their own copies, et cetera. They're so lean and mean, but they do such amazing work that the law firm lawyers seem to not recognize that there are not that many resources there. So I think having a foot in both camps is, is really, really helpful. What motivates and inspires you? I think often it's just that you you can make a difference. Um, and it doesn't always take that much effort to make a difference. That That's also what frustrates me is not being able to get more people to make that difference <laughs> sometimes. It's also what gets me into trouble because I take on too many things. But, you know, you can see using the law, how you can chart a different path for someone or for a group of people. And um, it's just too tempting to go out and do it. What are your greatest challenges? Well, I think not enough time. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, the last, uh, last nine months have been particularly challenging, and I don't know if you want to get into that later. It really is not enough time. Yeah. That that's uh, we we need to clone all of us, um, and we'll get back yeah. we'll get back to the uh, the recent short term. What do you enjoy most about your job? You're just involved in so many wonderful wonderful projects. You know, I put out my little news from the pro bono front missives to the firm, and of course, I'm not putting out the ones that are a disaster or you know <laughs> that don't go well. But I think in this job, people have to be optimists because otherwise, you could be crushed. Um, by the inequities around you, but um, there's just so much opportunity. There's so many great stories. There's so many people you can help, so many great outcomes you can have. That's actually a good point, this this idea that, yeah, I mean, the work really can be crushing, <laughs> and, and the, the what we see can be devastating, and so there really is a high uh, chance of burnout. You know, what do you do to keep recharged and refreshed? Well, I do some running, Yeah, trying to develop a mindfulness practice. Some days are better than others in terms of keeping with that. Um, I have dogs and children, um, so they're certainly a distraction. Yeah. I mean, those are all great tips. I think the first one, and we worked with a, uh, a dean at a uh, school of social work to, to help us think about this, because obviously social workers have this a lot, right? And it's, yes. it's baked into their training DNA, sort of burnout and compassion fatigue and how to fight it. We thought, oh, you know, we really need to bring this to the pro bono community because we have the same thing, only we are not trained at all. And sort of tip number one is recognize 
recognizing it. And, and that helps, you know, that you already start yoga, talking to people, looking at a beautiful sunset. I mean, you already start developing uh, tools to keep it at bay once you kind of own it, you know, and name it and recognize that it, it is an issue. Right. And I know over the past few years, a lot of the pro bono conferences that, you know, started having seminars or sessions on secondary trauma, yeah. et cetera. And, and I kind of got it. I wasn't quite at that breaking point yet, <laughs> but I also was a little frustrated by it because it's like, you know, I, I don't want to just have the trauma. I want to, you know, yep. deal with it. So then as mindfulness has become more mainstream, more there, there've been a number of sessions that I'm, I've helped organize some sessions on mindfulness and found an awful lot of um, attorneys who are working with mindfulness, and I find that more productive. Yeah, to have actual yeah. sort of strategies and and, right. and things that you can employ in your life for all kinds of situations. So exactly, um, really useful. All right, so let's circle back to kind of current events. In, in one mm-hmm. of your pro bono news portals, the sort of springish newsletter, uh, you noted, it's a really eloquent observation, quote, in uncertain and turbulent political atmosphere, pro bono services have become even more critical to ensuring fair legal treatment for all. Ballard Spar has moved swiftly to meet new pro bono challenges while continuing to provide fundamental services to its traditional pro bono clients, low-income families, nonprofit organizations, and small businesses. So elaborate a little bit and reflect on the last few months. Well, I think we really had a a rambunctious change of administrations because Ballard Spar had been very, very deeply involved in the Clemency Project. One of our partners was on the steering committee, and we ended up having over 100 attorneys, um, almost all of whom had no prior criminal law experience, um, engaged in the project and representing clemency ad- applicants. We ended up getting clement- presidential clemency grants for 29 clients around the country, and more than half of them were in the last month of the Obama administration. So it was an incredibly intense time leading up to the change of administration. And then, of course, the weekend after um, the new president was sworn in, we had the travel ban and... Um, folks ending up at the airports representing um, people who could not get into the country, some of whom were long-term residents. And so we were involved in that as well. And of course, there's been a lot of immigration activity, most recently DACA, you know, lots of fear in the immigrant community about deportation um, and disruption to families. There've just been so many areas where regardless of what you think about the administration's policies, there are changes and sudden changes to those policies. So you have people, individuals who are getting trapped in that change and, and need to navigate. So you mentioned DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that was suspended last, you know, last week was the big announcement. What, what's happened at the firm since? Have you been involved in any sort of spiked in activities since, since that happened? Well, so there's national training occurring. I've got a lot of attorneys around the country who would like to participate. So we're monitoring, you know, what's going on in 15 different cities right now. And it varies from city to city. Um, In a couple of the cities where we have offices, the immigration agencies are pretty sure they're going to be able to handle these short-term renewals of DACA registration that need to occur in the next three weeks. Um, in other cities, they're asking for help. So it's, it's you know, when you're dealing with a national law firm, it's a lot of trying to track down the information and and share it and get it out there in a timely manner. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's this race to the October 5th deadline and then, yes. you know, kind of looking beyond that, but events seem to be changing sort of hour by hour. Right. So it's, yeah, which also is a challenge. Um, right. Before we leave the Clemency Project, I, I wanted to share this great quote that you published from a public finance lawyer who took on mm-hmm. a, a Clemency Project case. I think that this is a great 
sort of example of the power of pro bono. And this lawyer reflected on the experience and, and, and the quote is, this whole experience was the most stressful yet the most rewarding of my career. The pressure of negotiating a bond transaction simply pales in comparison to the pressure you feel when you are drafting a petition that, if successful, will give someone back their life or if not, will kill their last hope for freedom. All of us, no matter how inexperienced and clueless, and believe me, that I was and still am as to the matters of federal sentencing and drug offenses, are still privileged and have so many resources at our disposal, which can make such a huge difference in the lives of those who are not as fortunate. I felt that this really echoed on a lot of themes that we've actually been talking about, right? Getting people out of their areas of expertise. Here we have, you know, a non-litigator <laughs> sort of work working on something that even though it wasn't necessarily going to lead to an adversarial court proceeding, you, you have that, right? Kind of a, getting a bond lawyer, a public finance lawyer involved. What can they do pro bono? And having a really meaningful experience. So I, I just, this reflection is dynamite. Well, and, and it was one that just touched us so much because it's so much of what we're trying to do. You're really making a difference using, you know, your basic legal skills if you get the right support. And that's where having our, our partner, Margie Pierce, be such a strong advocate for the program and being, you know, a national expert on sentencing law. So people felt like they had really strong support um, in the project, but then being able to help the lawyer in addition to the client, have the lawyer have this kind of transformative experience. And we know that person is going to come back and do it again. And it's a great role modeling to have because mm -hmm. we do often, I mean, I'm sure you have this all the time, right, where there are just some practice groups where you scratch your head and you think, uh, <laughs> what, yeah. you know, there, there's just obstacle after obstacle, when you're, whether genuine or just perceived. So it's great to have some of these kind of unsuspecting players or unsuspecting practice groups to be able to say, nope, <laughs> there are projects for everybody. We can figure this out. Well, and that's what's great about having such a deep bench of um, pro bono players here, because you can say you can do it within your regular practice area, if appropriate. But um, a couple years ago, the head of our IP group, who is a patent lawyer, <laughs> excuse me, with, I think, a chemistry PhD, he decided to form an asylum practice group down in Atlanta. And so these IP lawyers worked with the Georgia Asylum and Immigration Network and started taking asylum cases. I think that that story represents another pro bono theme, which is people working on issues that they feel passionately about. So, you know, whether you have a patent uh, practice and your background is in chemistry, but you care about immigrants, you can get involved in, and figure it out. That's right. Another uh, immigration and immigrant-related project that the firm was involved in not that long ago was working with Appleseed on a guidance manual for undocumented immigrant parents. What was that all about? Well, that really came out in, at the same time as the airport issues. There were several um, executive orders issued that first week of the new administration, and one of them had to do with reordering um, the priorities for who was going to get deported. So whereas the Obama administration had focused on people with violent crimes, et cetera, um, the new administration said that it was going to be anyone who'd broken the law, which means if you're here illegally, it's anyone who's undocumented. So there was just an incredible fear in the immigrant community, and all the agencies were being overwhelmed with calls from people who wanted to know what was going to happen to their children if they were deported. So Apple, we'd forked with Appleseed in the past, and Appleseed put out a call for assistance with updating a manual it had first put out in 2012. And we took on the sections involving children and education. Um, and we have an attorney. She's a labor and employment attorney. But for the past 20 years, her pro bono contribution has been around custody and um, child welfare. So it was a natural for her. And we just got a team from across the firm to work on it. Um, and that then spawned other projects, including helping identify the variations between states and what is done, because, of course, every state has its own procedure or lack thereof. And the sort of the strangest outcome was that um, 
we ended up doing a webinar for um, people who work for the Mexican consulates across the country because that was the number one question they were getting. They want, they needed to know more about what was going to happen to custody of children um, who are American citizens if their parents, undocumented parents, are deported. Well, I think the pressures persist, so the work is oh, yeah. incredibly meaningful and will continue. Um, yes. I want to switch gears a little bit. You and the firm have been at the forefront of pro bono legal efforts to support access to nutritious food. And this happens in a variety of projects and contexts. And I was so inspired by a project a number of years ago that the firm did, which was to support a nonprofit that um, is basically Urban Gardens, you know, um, that initiative. And it got a lot of publicity, Urban Community Gardens. I think Prince Charles visited the client farm when he was visiting the United States. And it was at the same time that I was thinking about that. And it led to a publication that we created. It was Pro Bono Food for Thought and a wide variety of pro bono opportunities, whether it's helping people get access to the right benefits or, you know, policy reform, litigation, community economic development to bring grocery stores to, you know, food Mm -hmm. oases and things like that. But you and the firm have been doing a lot of this work before anyone knew what it was. So could you tell us a little bit about some examples of of the type of work and clients and, and things that you've been doing? Sure. I mean, it was funny because about, I guess, four years ago or so, we realized that there was this confluence of both pro bono work and donations and volunteer work that people at the firm were doing. So it really has become kind of a cornerstone of our social responsibility um, efforts. But it did start with representing some urban gardens, um, the one in D.C. that Prince Charles and Camilla visited. Yes, sorry, Camilla. Yes. Also <laughs> some in Philly and in New Jersey. Um, we also now represent food banks in three or four different states um, because they have contractual needs and sometimes they have governance issues. Um, it is one of our, our best partnerships is with a group that started in Philadelphia called Common Market. And it's a nonprofit with the mission of sort of repairing the withered supply chains between local food producers, local sustainable food producers, and the inner city. So this group cultivates the family farms and the small food producers and then helps them um, package and market their products to institutional um, buyers, such as schools, charter schools, hospitals, et cetera, in the city. It helps them set up um, farm markets and does nutritional education. So Common Market in Philly has just been an amazing story. They get all kinds of grants and awards and everything, but they've been so successful that they've seen a lot of interest from around the country, and they've started um, not exactly franchising, but spinning off their program into other cities. So over the past year and a half, we have helped them um, start a similar program in Georgia. And now they are going to Texas. And so it's really helping promote having fresh, um, nutritious food available, particularly in inner city markets, but also in places where it just wasn't um, as easy to get it, like hospitals, schools, et cetera. Well, replicating successful innovations is amazing. And I think the whole area of hunger and nutritious food is really appealing. Um, There's Mm -hmm. such a wide variety of projects. I think it speaks to law firm demographics, which have a lot of foodies. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's of interest. It's a passion for people. And we can sort of marry them. And really, you and the firm have been at the forefront of this. And you're doing just some amazing, meaningful work. And it also circles back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is just poverty, you know, and helping address a lot of the collateral consequences of being poor in America. Um, mm-hmm. And this really does that. Yeah. And, and through groups like the nutrition ones or education groups or other groups that are working on these issues, you know, often it gives us an opportunity to get some of the transactional lawyers involved because they can help with the real estate issues. They can help with the contract. They can help with the zoning, whatever. Um, it speaks to the strengths of the large firm lawyers when we're assisting the 
nonprofits that are really making a dent in, in these issues. Yeah, a real wide variety of legal needs. So I am really fascinated when any firm can keep a pro bono project going for a long time. And you've had one for now 20 plus years, a bi-monthly legal clinic for the homeless at the Sunday Breakfast Association. So tell us about that. And how do you sustain a project for so long? Um, you have a partner who's all over it. That helps. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. So um, one of our partners, Scott Towers, has been involved with the Homeless Advocacy Project for almost its entire life. That's a nonprofit here in Philadelphia that helps set up these adopt-a-shelter legal clinics. So Ballard has one with Sunday Breakfast Association. There's, um, I think there's 20 regular legal clinics in the city that are adopted by law firms and corporate legal departments. It's just been a matter of getting five to six volunteers every couple of weeks and sending them over. You minimize, but it's not that easy. I mean, there are a lot of firms that see kind of longstanding projects where people just lose interest or, Mm -hmm. you know, personnel changes and the the, the nonprofit partners aren't as viable or, um, you know, there's just a lot of reasons. Maybe the needs have changed and and so projects need to be phased out because other things have become more urgent. So I I appreciate the modesty, but (laughs) it it is incredible. It's a credible test testament to the leaders, the participants, everyone involved in the collaborative effort to, to keep a project like this going and being meaningful and, and impactful. Well, it helps that it's an easy entree. I mean, it's, it's going out there to do intake. The, the folks who do intake aren't required to take the cases, although we do try to take the cases we bring back as long as we don't have conflicts. But it's, it's an easy entree, so we make a point of bringing summer associates and new associates so that you're constantly renewing your volunteer pool. But on the other hand, we've got some very senior lawyers. Um, the head of our mergers and acquisitions practice has been doing it for 20, 25 years, and he goes several times a year. Um, one of our banking attorneys goes several times a year and supervises Social Security's cases. So... Um, it's a combination of having some people with longevity and institutional memory and then, you know, renewing the pool with, with incoming people. And, and it's also been interesting to see the relationship develop because um, our colleagues at Comcast started their pro bono program in earnest um, a year and a half ago. And they've been partnering with us at this shelter, and that has expanded so that we are now doing SOAR cases with them. That's a special Social Security fast-track program for certain uh, demographic groups, uh, more senior homeless people, vets, et cetera. So the folks, some of the folks who were doing the intake decided to get together and train to do SOAR cases, and now they're handling them in teams. And then when Comcast has its Comcast Cares volunteer days, well, they picked Sunday Breakfast Association to be the place that they would go clean up, paint up, fix up, plant flowers, um, whatever, with a team of Comcast and Ballard volunteers. So, you know, the, the effort really has expanded as people have found different angles to focus on. And that's been, that's been a really nice relationship. So it occurs to me that one underlying theme of our whole discussion today is continuity and change because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's sort of disruptions and new innovations and changes, but also some continuity, right? Longstanding programs, longstanding commitments, longstanding Mm -hmm. uh, culture and values. So on a slightly lighter note, what does a Ballard Spar pro bono client have in common with Harry Connick Jr. and Barbara Corcoran from the Shark Tank? So, well, Harry Connick now has his um, talk show. Yeah. And I mentioned before, we have a number of patent lawyers who not all of them want to do asylum work. So many of them take cases through the U.S. Patent and Trade Office's patent pro bono program. A couple years ago, this young woman came up with a great new idea for a baby carrier and we ended up representing her, and then she won a competition and ended up on Harry Connick's show with the Shark Tank lady. That's amazing. So, yeah, that's uh, it's I would say a quote unquote success story. So, yes. it's nice. We actually just had another success story that I want to share with you. Great. 
in the New York Times Magazine in May, there was an article about um, the Kushner family um, real estate um, holdings in Baltimore and how the real estate company there in Baltimore had some very, very aggressive collection tactics and people who didn't owe money were getting uh, swept up in those practices. The article focused on a particular young woman who did not have a lawyer and a judgment for almost $5,000 was entered against her and they took money from her bank account in collection and she didn't owe any of it. Um, some of the lawyers in our Baltimore office read the article and they were so upset at this injustice happening in their backyard. They went out and they found the woman and they got a release and a satisfaction of judgment and she's going to be able to repair her credit. That's amazing. It, it is great work by, by you and your, your colleagues in the Baltimore office. It is a great article. If you are interested in housing issues um, or life these days, it's, it's a very compelling deep dive. Um, so it's amazing yeah. that you could read about an injustice and then jump into action. That's the power of being a lawyer. <laughs> that is really... That is. Um, and I was so proud yeah. of these folks taking the initiative. Yep. Are there... We've covered a lot of territory, but we've left so much on the table, which is why we're going to have to have you back. But are there any other examples of pro bono matters uh, that have been particularly meaningful to you or that you want to tell us about, either that you've worked on or that you've seen colleagues do before we move on? Probably the two that have spoken to me the most over over time here. Um, one is a death penalty case that we took on in 2004, shortly after I started, for a gentleman named Daniel Doherty, who was convicted of felony murder after there was a fire in his home and his two young sons were killed. He wasn't charged for years. The witnesses were very questionable, but he had really bad representation and he was convicted and sentenced to death. Um, We got the case after um, all the appeals had been exhausted. Over time, we've been able to get him off death row. We got him a new trial, but there were problems with that. So he is still in jail. But, I mean, we have made a difference. We've enabled him to have a relationship with his remaining child. He's off death row. He can see family. And we're holding out hope that at some point um, we can unwind the many injustices that kind of have piled upon one another and made it very difficult to undo the original problem. Um, So that is one. The other is... A young woman named Hawa Salah, who we began representing, um, I guess, in 2013, 2014. Hawa uh, is from Darfur. She um, was in a village that was overrun in 2012. She had just graduated from high school. She and many of the women in the village were kidnapped. A hundred of her relatives were killed. She made her way to an IDP camp where she went through college. She became an agent of the UN and the NGOs working in the IDP, um, being a rule of law agent and advocating on behalf particularly of women, um, but also of all the refugees um, for her trouble. She was repeatedly arrested and tortured. And in 2015, she was arrested and kept in jail for about three or four months, targeted for execution, and was only released because she had been an employee of a UN agency, and there was a lot of international pressure. She then managed to escape Sudan, which she was told not to leave, but someone got her papers, and she was brought to the U.S. where she received an International Woman of Courage Award from Secretary of State Clinton and Michelle Obama. Um, She then applied for asylum to stay here because she can't return to Sudan. Hawa is the most amazing person um, you will ever meet. I heard something on NPR this morning about certain people being placed on the planet simply to make a difference, and that is Hawa. She is lovely. She is charming. Um, Our chair represented her in her asylum petition, and he said, I could not believe that this wonderful woman sitting in front of me was the person that all these things had been done to. Um, She continues to work on behalf of her family, which is still in the IDP camp, and on behalf of all the refugees in Darfur. She's testified before the Security Council. She regularly pickets the UN and the White House when she's not working in our records room. 
and she is just the most amazing individual, and I'm so proud of everyone who's been involved in helping her find her feet here and helping her continue her mission. Oh, Mary Gay, those are amazing stories, and they're so inspiring, and I think people like that... uh, that's what keeps us going. We talked about burnout and um, compassion fatigue, but then you encounter just strong gems, right? You know, Mm -hmm. and you're sort of like, how? You know, what is that spark within you? And it's contagious. It really is. So let it all rub off on us to to carry on and and be energized and um, inspired. That's amazing. So on that note, and it's a really uh, related um, question, let's end with this. Who is your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one and why. That's really hard. (laughs) I mean, one of them would be someone who doesn't strictly do legal work, but Sister Mary Scullion in Philadelphia. She runs Project Home and doesn't take no for an answer, is incredibly strategic, you know, makes every issue an opportunity and lists all kinds of people in support. One of her big supporters is John Bon Jovi. He's plowed millions of dollars into housing at her behest. Um, so she's a real hero and I met her probably when I was only a couple years out of law school. Um, I lived in the same neighborhood as one of her first shelters and got to know her then. And she just has moved from strength to strength. And so she's really awe inspiring. I mean, in the pro bono community, there's so many people, um, just doing amazing work. I mean, Susie Turner, who was my predecessor, had the idea, um, to become one of the first, official pro bono, um, you know, pro bono was part of the job in a big law firm. Um, David Lash, you know, Melvin E.M. Myers, he's, he's so thoughtful and um, knowledgeable, and he has a sense of humor, which is important. Um, Tamara Caldas down um, in Atlanta is the most energetic person I think I've ever seen. So, um, you know, there's great people in New York, in Philadelphia, my work wife, Kathy Ockrock. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. um, you know, it, it, I can't pick one in the pro bono community. Oh, there's of course so many not. great people. Of course not. And they're great. And I will, before we leave, plug Kathy Ockrock's episode because it was amazing. She, she's been a guest <laughs> on the pod, too. So you can hear from a pro bono role model um, firsthand. But anyway, you've given us so much food for thought and such amazing inspiration. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Mary Gay, for making the time to be with us and for all the inspiring pro bono work you and the firm are doing. New and archived episodes of the show can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for others to find our podcast and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Hey, listeners, keep the mail coming. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. 